0: get started, I just want to ask a a quick question. Who here wears jeans? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's good. I'm wearing jeans as well. Jeans are very comfortable. Um, Now, who has either owned or maybe is wearing a a pair of authentic Levi jeans? Anyone here? We got two, three, four. Okay. So a few. You know, there's lots of jean companies. Did you know that at one time, Levi jeans were illegal? Not here in the United States, but in the German Democratic Republic, or we may know it as East Germany. So uh, East Germany we know was sort of the communist um, German state created after World War II. And there are a lot of restrictions on a lot of things, restrictions on speech, restrictions on religion, but curiously also restrictions on Levi Strauss genes. And the reason for that is genes were viewed as sort of this Western capitalist uh, subversion of their society. And in fact, a lot of the youth who were sort of uh, resisting um, the German state would smuggle in or uh, get through the black market Levi genes. And so the East German government banned them Well, unfortunately for them, uh, they found it very hard to actually ban it because people just kept smuggling them in, all this stuff. So they decided, you know what, if we can't ban it, we'll at least try to control it. So uh, they started uh, allowing just small quantities of the genes to uh, enter into East Germany, and they would sell them in government-approved shops. So you could still get genes... Or Levi jeans, but you could only get it in these government-approved shops, and they also tried to make off, uh, make knockoff versions of the jeans. Um, but unfortunately, they were just very uncomfortable. No one really liked them, so it didn't really end demand for these Levi jeans. And finally, towards uh, the late 80s, early uh, well, yeah, late 80s, just about uh, 1989. Uh, they imported uh, $9 million worth of Levi jeans, they just couldn't really control the demand of the people, so they decided, you know what, we'll just import a bunch of these jeans, but you can only get one pair at a time at these government-approved shops, so still trying to restrict them, um, first they're illegal, then they're available in limited quantities, then they're knocked off, then you can get one pair and there's a lot of them available. now. What's interesting is 1990, uh, you know, this is after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, West Germany and East Germany actually reunite. So now we have the, uh, the state or country of Germany that we know it today. And what's interesting is if you were an East German citizen, and uh, you really wanted Levi genes, you uh, had issues getting them, all of a sudden in 1990, there's no problem getting these jeans. You Are part of the free state of Germany. You can buy as many pairs of Levi's as you can afford um, and wear them all the time. No issues there. And so, what is so interesting about that, and as it relates to our passage today, is as the state of East Germany died, stop (laughs) even, as that died, um, the East German citizens were freed from the restrictive and silly laws of East Germany. The state died and that gave freedom to the uh, new unified state of German, Germany, their citizens. They not only died to the old law of East Germany, but they also entered into the freedoms and the privileges and prerogatives of German citizenship. And so with that, that is a, a very close parallel to what happens in the life of a believer in that we die to the old way of living by the law, and we come alive in the new law, the new way of Christ by his spirit. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today, looking at Romans 7, 1 through 6, and just seeing how it is that this new reality has come about, that we have died to the law, and what that means practically for our lives. Uh, So if you want to turn to Romans 7, 1 through 6, and I will pray for us while we do that. Lord, thank you so much for, Lord, just the privilege of uh, preaching your word, Lord, and just the the riches of your word, the riches of your wisdom. And Lord, I just pray today that uh, as we hear your word preached, that it would just uh, be active and working in our soul, that it would empower us, Lord, help us to understand uh, our relationship to you better, Lord, and help to help us to live in true and godly obedience to you. And we just ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God's word from Romans. Now, uh, just before we dive into the passage, uh, just to sort of recap uh, where we are in Romans... So uh, as uh, Toby had uh, preached uh, two weeks ago now uh, through Romans 6, um, Paul has sort of answered uh, this charge um, in Romans 6 about, well, why should we be godly at all? Why shouldn't we uh, just sin to increase God's glory so that grace abounds? And we see that uh, Paul just basically lays out Christian identity. Why would you want to do that? Why would you remain a slave to sin? when you've been freed from sin. Uh, That's not who you are. That's not uh, what your life is now in Christ. And specifically in Romans 6, 14, uh, Paul makes uh, one uh, point there. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And from there, he goes on to continue talking about our uh, freedom from sin. But now in the beginning of chapter seven, he's sort of circling back to that. He's circling back to that verse. He's gonna explain now at length, what do you mean that we're no longer under the law? What what is the effect of that? How did that occur? And so that's where we are now. So with that, we see uh, he begins the chapter with the word or uh, just referencing back uh, to not just the whole of chapter six, but even specifically 614. And so uh, he says he's speaking now to people who know the law. And in this case, he is talking not necessarily about God's law, not necessarily about Mosaic law, uh, but just law in general, just to people who know the law. So all of you know the law. You know if you speed too much, you'll get a traffic ticket. Um, You know not to steal, things like that. So just law is a very general category but he's saying this uh, as law in a general category to make a point about God's moral law specifically. So he brings up an analogy, um, and what he compares this to, what he uh, basically mentions to them is uh, marital law, so how uh, marital law functions, And again, this is a very general concept, but applied and the intention is theological. So in verses one through three, he uh, just kind of lays out the obvious fact that uh, as long as you're married to someone, you are married to that person for as long as you live. Uh, You know, the marital vows are till death do us part. Um, You are bound to that person. Uh, He's specifically taking the perspective of the woman here, Uh, not for any, uh, I guess, misogynist reasons or anything like that, nothing uh, negative, but just most of his audience are going to be Gentiles. And with very few exceptions, it was very difficult for women to divorce their husbands or initiate that under general Roman law. So for the most part, if you're a Roman uh, wife, you really are till death to you part. There's not really a lot of instances where you can initiate ending the relationship. So again, general law, this is sort of what he's saying. And so again, he makes the point that uh, you're bound to your spouse uh, as long as they're alive. So if you then decide to go live with someone else, um, you're gonna be an adulterer or adulteress in this case. You're, you can't just live with or marry someone else while you're still married. That's not how it goes. You're already bound to someone. But if you uh, find yourself in the situation where uh, your spouse dies or your husband dies, um, at that point you're actually free from the marital relationship. It is okay to marry someone else. There's no more legally binding uh, contract that prevents you from doing that. Now, what's the point of this? Uh, You know, Paul's not just laying out marital law, just again, for no reason, but he's relating this specifically to the Christian's relationship to God's moral law. So again, we're going from very general now to very specific, and he is saying that a very similar thing has taken place in the Christian's life, that likewise, uh, verse 4, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So he's taking this analogy and applying it to the situation of the believer. The believer has died, so it's a little bit different than the analogy, but the main point is when a spouse dies, uh, there's freedom to remarry. So we as the believers uh, have died through Christ's death. We have participated in his death by being united to him through conversion. And so we have died and that then allows us to marry someone else. And that person that we're marrying is Christ. You know, we see elsewhere in scripture the church is described as the bride of Christ. Uh, That uh, same sort of theological idea is being applied here, that we are married to Christ, that we're free from our relationship to the law, and are now his, we are his spouse and he is our spouse. And the purpose of that is that we bear fruit for God. Uh, This isn't just uh, something with no effect, this has a profound effect and purpose in that we are able to bear fruit, we are able to act righteously. And so I won't speak too much more on that last part of verse four, Uh, because we're going to circle back around to it when we get to verse 6, because we're going to dive into more how that works, what that means. But essentially, just this first four verses is laying out the analogy, if a spouse dies, you're free to remarry, and then applies that analogy to our situation, that we have died to the law, and now we're free to marry a new spouse, and that new spouse is Christ. But perhaps you're wondering... And I imagine a lot of Paul's readers were wondering, why is this necessarily a good thing or even a necessary thing? I mean, the law of God is a good thing, right? I mean, if you say, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself, that's God's moral law. And I don't think any of us would say, nah, that's really bad, that's evil to say that. Absolutely not. No one is going to really argue that. And so that can maybe create some confusion again, especially for Paul's readers who are Jewish and who uh, know God's law through the Mosaic legislation. And so Paul now needs to explain what exactly is the problem with the law. Why is it bad for people to live under the law, or why is it necessary for them to die to it and then be married to Christ? So Paul, prior to verse 5 throughout Romans, has sort of made a few comments on the law. Well, not just a few, a lot of comments. Um, But in general, he has kind of said two things um, with varying levels of detail. Uh, One is just in salvation, we are justified apart from the law, that uh, we are made right with God, that his righteousness is imputed to us, uh, because that is what's necessary for salvation no one can actually obey God's law fully. Everybody is going to fail because of our sinfulness. If this is the standard and we're all right down here, no one is going to to jump above that standard. No one is going to be able to satisfy God's demands. So that's the first piece. The second piece, uh, verse uh, chapter 4, 15, he says the law brings wrath, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what Paul is saying here, and this is in the context of him talking about Abraham being justified by faith and God's promises being through faith rather than the law. Uh, What Paul is basically saying here is that the function of the law is to bring wrath. The function of the law is to show how far short of God's standards we are. Um, The law itself is not bad but if you have the standard that you need to meet here, and we're all down here, the very function of the law is going to show us that we are not meeting the standard, that we are uh, failing in serving the Lord. And because of that, because of our sin, that brings God's wrath, that uh, brings God's judgment, because the law shows that we are failing the standard. And so we see we can't live by the law, we can't actually achieve its demands, and one of the effects of the law is that it brings God's wrath. But Paul here in verse 5 is adding another piece to this, and this is something very unique because elsewhere in uh, sort of, it's called Second Temple Judaism, this sort of period of uh, Jewish life, uh, right, a few hundred years before Christ and then maybe a hundred or so years after. Um, Nowhere else is anyone else going to say something even remotely close to what Paul is going to say here in verse 5. And so this is what really sets Paul, what sets the Christian view of the law, apart from uh, maybe closely related relatives at that time. And he says here in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So he starts off by uh, just placing us sort of in the mind state that we are living in the flesh. He's sort of taking that perspective. And by that, he's referring to just our sinful nature, living in the sinful nature. And with that... uh, Part of that sinful nature is that we have sinful desires. We desire our souls are bent away from God. God is here and we're always going to be tilting in this direction. But he says here that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. And what he means by that is that our sinful passions see the standard of the law. They see the standard thou shalt not Covet. Uh, this is kind of dipping into the next section of chapter seven, but uh, we see that standard, and it's not just that the law doesn't have the power to make us change or make us make us righteous. We actually dig our heels in when we see the standard, and go further and deeper in the opposite direction. Um, I remember uh, when I was uh, a teenager, our town instituted a curfew for for teens um, that. You couldn't be outside past 9 p.m. I never was outside past 9 p.m., like wandering around. Um, I kind of lived a little bit out of the downtown area, so I'd just be walking through the woods if I did. Um, But you know what? Once I heard that there was a curfew about going out at 9, literally the next day, me and my buddies just started running around town past 9 o'clock for no other reason than that we were told not to do it. Uh, that is a, a clear example of our sinful nature where we see the standard of the law and we just double down and go even further in the opposite direction. And that's what Paul is saying happens with us in, in general when we see the law. Our passions are aroused, our, uh, our passions are uh, rebelling against the standard of the law And the result of that is that uh, it works through our members, it works through our uh, life to bring about death. We don't bear fruit for God, as in verse four, we bear fruit for death um, because we know that the wages of sin are death. So the law itself, not only can it not save, not only does it point out our sinfulness, but it actually provokes us to become more sinful, to, to harden our hearts even further, to double down in the wrong direction. And so just to illustrate that, I want you to imagine an escalator. (laughs) All right. Definitely imagine it now. (laughs) So uh, imagine an escalator um, and it's a, it's a down escalator. So Yeah, the escalator goes down. Not really anything else to it. Um, but imagine I am the manager of the department store and I really want that down escalator to be an up escalator. So what I do is I uh, just draw a big sign with an up arrow and I put it in front of the down escalator. What do you think's going to happen? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> putting that arrow there isn't going to change the down escalator. The, the very nature, the way that the escalator is configured internally is just to go down. I can put as many signs up as I want. I can yell at the escalator. I can tell it to go up. And no amount of me saying that is actually going to make the escalator go up. And so I want you to, to keep that in mind. And with the analogy, the escalator is us and our sinfulness and the sign is the law. So the law, the sign has no power to actually affect change in the escalator. But let's say I'm a particularly clumsy manager and I happen to place the sign on the button for the speed of the escalator. Um, I know that's not how escalators work, but let's just <laughs> suspend disbelief for a moment. Um, so I put the sign there. And now, not only is the escalator not going to go up, it's actually going to start going down a lot faster. Uh, the, the fact that I put the sign there, the fact that I introduced this law, uh, isn't just going to have no effect and the, the, the escalator is not going to go up it's going to double down. It's going to go faster down. Um, And in that regard, we're actually in a worse off state than if I hadn't even put the sign there to begin with. So this admittedly is a somewhat weird uh, kind of clunky analogy, but that is uh, the way that we are in our natural state. Again, when we see the law, uh, the first thing the law can't do is it can't actually affect change. You know, if I tell you, be a better person, absent anything else happening internally for you, it's not really going to do anything. Uh, it, it's merely me showing you the standard, telling you what to do, but it can't affect change in your sinful heart. And worse yet, it actually provokes our sinful passions that we double down, that we dig in our heels, that we go further, faster, deeper in the opposite direction because of the rebellion in our heart. So this is the reason why living according to the law is problematic for us as sinful human beings. We can't obey it, we can't be changed by it, and we'll be worse off because we're going to double down on our sin. We're going to go deeper into that. So this is why Paul needs us, or is laying out the fact that we need to be uh, in a state where we are not under the power of the law, that we're not under the arrangement where the law is all we have. Uh, Just to throw another example at you, um, just to reinforce uh, reinforce this point, um, C4 is an explosive. Oh, there we go. Um, And it's actually inert. Uh, in just its normal state. I could take a brick of C4, I could juggle it around, we could pass it around the church, everyone would be fine, until I activate the detonator. And at that point, with the introduction of the detonator, the instructions for it to activate, then we have a chemical reaction, then we have a massive explosion. And again, this is to illustrate the point that uh, with the introduction of the law, We are provoked to sin. We are provoked to give into our sinful nature. So again, we need something other than the law. So then, what is the solution to this conundrum that Paul has laid out for us? How are we to get out from under this situation where we live under the law that we can't serve and that makes us worse? So this is where we transition and Paul transitions in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So parking back to verses uh, to verse 4, we've died to the law through the death of Christ. We've participated in that. We're now married to a new spouse who is Christ. And so where does that leave us? Where does that leave us in relation to holiness or sanctification? Well, what it does is it allows us to live in a new way with a new empowerment, with a new fuel for holiness. So if we look at the last part of verse 6, it says, "...so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Uh, that word to serve is the same one we've seen in, uh, for, in chapter six uh, that Paul uses to talk about uh, being a servant, being a slave, being uh, intricately bound and obligated to someone. So we are still serving. We are still uh, going to obey Only now, instead of obeying our sinful passions, only now, instead of being provoked by the law, we are going to serve in a different and a new way. And that new way is the way of the Spirit, the way of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul doesn't give us a ton of detail right here uh, because he's going to save that for chapter 8, where he's really going to go into what it means to have a a spiritual, spirit-filled, life, but I think it's important to at least lay out some of the general contours of what he means by that. So with this contrast, he's contrasting this new way with the spirit, with the old way of the written code. So we know the old way of the written code uh, really couldn't actually serve it. We couldn't uh, actually obey God in any substantial, significant way. But now, by being united to Christ, we're also united and filled with the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And this affects the change in our heart that the law couldn't effect. This causes us to not be bent towards sin, but to actually have our habits bent towards God, that we can actually serve him in some real substantial way. And so if we go back to the escalator, uh, we know that the sign didn't work. We know that we put the sign on the speed button and that only made things worse. But let's say that a mechanic comes in and he actually switches the track around. He puts in a new escalator engine. I don't know how they work, Uh, but he installs all the new components so that the escalator now can finally go in the direction it was intended. The escalator was never going to go up because of the sign, because of uh, our pleading with it, but it will go down now that internally something has changed. Internally, uh, a new part, a new engine, a new nature has taken place. And that's the same thing for us in living in this new way of the spirit. Because of our sinfulness and because of the provocation of the law, There's no way that we could substantially serve God. But with the way of the Spirit, with the implantation and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we now have the ability to actually serve and obey God. Now, this isn't going to be perfect. This isn't going to be absolute. Um, And certainly we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 7 some of the struggle that goes on in the Christian life. But it is going to be real. It's going to be actual. The commands that God has that we see, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, to love our neighbor, to, uh, to pray, to do good to those around us. We actually have the ability to do that, which we didn't before. We are being changed and turned in a new direction to accomplish the dictates of the law, the moral law, that we would never be able to do without God actually changing us. So with that, uh, I hope that you are encouraged knowing that you actually do have, through the Holy Spirit, the ability now to serve God, to bear fruit for God, to do good and righteous deeds, to live a life that's pleasing to God, again, not in perfection, Not absolutely, not sinlessly, but actually and substantially. And I think one thing I want to highlight with that is that this is nothing that you or I do or affect in ourselves. That this is purely from start to finish an act of God's grace. We aren't the ones who made the sacrifice to... uh, that caused us to die to the law. And we're not the ones who now have some internal strength or fortitude on our own to serve or obey God. I can't just you know, concentrate really hard and now be a good person or, or do good deeds. Uh, it's not in our power, it's purely by the grace of God and the empowerment of God's spirit alone that allows us to do so. So as with Everything in Christianity, not just our salvation, but our future sanctification, is all based in God's grace. It's not based in our efforts, it's not based in our internal strength, but it is based purely in the grace of God and in the power of his Holy Spirit. So I pray today, as the the band comes up, uh, that you would be encouraged, that you would realize that you no longer live under the law that you have a new spouse, you have a new husband, and that new husband is Christ, and that you would know that because of this new marriage, this union, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are empowered to serve God, and that we can actually do so not by our efforts, not by our strength, but by God's grace and by his Spirit.